Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand. We would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. So today we're going to continue our sermon series on the book of Ephesians. And we're going to focus our, uh, our talk today on Ephesians 2, 14 to 22. So when I was younger, um, Kate and my family and I, we traveled to Turkey and it reminds me of a terrible joke, but what do you say to a Turkish baby that won't be quiet? You say, shishka baby. <laughs> but while we were in Turkey, that was bad. That's bad. Yeah, it was, wasn't, wasn't one of my best. But while we were in Turkey, one of the places that we visited was the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was an ancient Greek city, and it sits on the coast of Turkey, and the ruins were pretty spectacular. Some of the best Roman era ruins in the world. And there's blocks of marble everywhere you look. And there's aqueducts that would bring water into the town. And there's fountains, you could see sort of where the fountains were. And there were giant bath complexes and you could see hospitals, and you could see churches and libraries, and you can see how t- over 225,000 people lived there at one time, which is about the same size as the city of Boulder and the city of Longmont combined. But Ephesus's claim to fame was the Temple of Artemis. And this was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, along with uh, the pyramids at Giza, and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which people don't actually know if that was actually real anyway. But historians called the Temple of Artemis more marvelous than any of the other seven ancient wonders. As an aside, I sometimes wonder what the sort of seven wonders of the modern world would be, and I think it'd be things like maybe the Empire State Building, or the Chunnel, which is the tunnel that runs between England and France where the trains can pass, or maybe Machu Picchu, I don't know. But I do think that Mr. Roboto at the left-hand church, which is the dumb-looking robot over there, would be one of them too. But the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus was built to honor the goddess, the Artemis of Ephesus. Artemis of Ephesus was a really popular deity in the time of Jesus. A Greek writer said that she was the most worshiped god or goddess in the entire Mediterranean world. Her look was a little unusual. She had a stiff body with her legs together. 
and she was called the many-breasted Artemis. On her head, she wore a crown, and Artemis was known as the Queen Bee because she had images of bees on her dress. This is not, <laughs> this is not to be confused with the real Queen Bay, who is Beyonce. And I told Shannon, who I don't think is here today, she was surprised that Beyonce was gonna be talked about, and this is simply a cheap way to get people to watch because that's the sole reference to Beyonce. <laughs> but Artemis's castrated priests were called her drones. It's true. And the temple to honor Artemis became one of the most important temples in the world. The historian Pliny the Elder said it took 120 years to build the temple of Artemis. The temple was covered in marble. It was longer than a football field in both length and width. There were 127 columns that supported the temple, and each of the columns were over six stories high. I think the tallest buildings in Longmont are the First Bank building and the hospital, both of which are five stories high. It was built for extravagance. So back to our trip to Ephesus. We're wandering in Ephesus, and of course I decide I have to find the ruins of the temple of Artemis. So I'm wandering down giant roads of broken marble, and I ask our tour guide, I said, where's the temple? And she said, there's very little of it left. In fact, it's represented at the ruins now by one inconspicuous column that was dug up during an archeological excavation that was led by the British Museum in the 1870s. Now, the one building in Ephesus that we did see that was spectacular was the theater of Ephesus. Imagine sort of a beautiful half-open air cir circle auditorium made out of marbles that was over three feet high. The theater was the largest in the world. It could seat over 25,000 people. By way of comparison, Red Rocks, when it's full, seats 9,500 people. And people still rave about the acoustics of the theater. Luciano Pavarotti, Elton John, Ray Charles, all of them have performed at this theater. And when you turn on PBS, and sometimes you'll see a concert set in an ancient auditorium, and it's someone like John Tesh or Yanni playing, the, there's a decent chance they're playing at the in Ephesus. But what I remember about being there is there were a group of students from a Bible college that were sitting up at the top of the theater, and they wanted to test the acoustics for themselves. So they started singing very, very, very loudly the song Onward Christian Soldier, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe, forward into, banner, into battle, see his banners go. And I sort of cringe today, thinking about the lack of self-awareness and the pride and how ugly that must have seemed to the Jewish and Muslim workers and tourists that had to listen to their off-key singing. Now, the theater in Ephesus is actually mentioned in the Bible. There's a story in Acts chapter 19. Paul lived in Ephesus for two and a half years. And Paul did in Ephesus what he did in most places, which is go to the synagogue, preach, and P.O. some of the locals. The story is told in Acts 19 verse 24 is that Paul was preaching against Artemis of Ephesus. 
and that caused a silversmith by the name of Demetrius to get angry because Paul was telling people not to buy idols of Artemis. And the local craftsmen, including Demetrius, their business was to sell idols of Artemis. So Demetrius got his fellow craftsmen angry at Paul. And then they talked to their friends and their family. And pretty soon, the city was in an uproar against Paul because Paul was speaking out against the god Artemis of Ephesus and was harming their business of selling idols to the tourists who come to town. So I'll pick it up in Acts 19, verse 29. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. So the silversmiths and the workers grabbed two of Paul's friends. And all of them rushed into the theater together. And I don't think that there was a group of college, Bible college kids singing in the theater at the time. But Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, essentially to advocate for them to release his two friends. But his disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent Paul a message begging him to not venture into the theater. So why did Paul's friends not want Paul to go into the theater? Because what was happening in the theater was chaos. Verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed a man to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense of Paul before all of the people. But when they realized that the person making a defense was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, the long story short is that a city clerk comes to the rescue. And I, think Paul, uh, I think Sean Lewis would love this story. But a city clerk shows up, city clerk talks the crowd down, Paul's friends end up released and okay, and Paul ends up fleeing from Ephesus. But Artemis of Ephesus was a big deal in this town. The book of Ephesians, which was written, a letter written by Paul to the church in Ephesus, was written years and years after this story. Most people think when Paul was in prison. But it's all helpful background to understand that Paul lived in Ephesus at one time, that Paul understood the temple of Artemis and the cult of Artemis and how central it was to the lives of the Ephesians. And the quick story gives us some background to understand better his letter to the Ephesians. So that's Ephesus. It was a diverse city. There were Greeks in Ephesus, there were followers of Artemis of Ephesus, and there were Jews, and there were early Christians. And it was diverse in other ways too. Ephesus was an important seaport. So there were many merchants and traders from throughout the known world. It was a multicultural city. It was a pluralistic city compared to much of the Near Eastern world. It was sort of a modern city that found itself in an earlier time. And Paul's book to the Ephesians, written years after he fled from the amphitheater, focuses on unity. We'll look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, and I'm going to use the message translation because I think it ac accurately captures the tone of the letter. The Messiah has made things up between us 
So we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. And that's important, put a pin in it because we're gonna come back to that line. He repealed the law that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. So I think that this is an attempt to say that all of us are made new in Jesus, that both Jews and non-Jews are a new kind of human being, no longer separated by a wall, to use Paul's words, that was used to keep Jews and non-Jews at a distance. And we'll pick it up in verse 19. You are no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home. He's using us all, irrespective of how we got here and what he is building. He used the apostles and prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all of the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. So Paul is writing to the Ephesians in Ephesus, which happens to be home, the largest temple in the known world, the temple of Artemis, the most spectacular of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and he flips everything on its head by talking about temples, but just not in the way that people were accustomed, not in the way that people were living at that time. Instead, Paul talks about building a temple with people, with us, with, with people that were born in the image of God, with Jesus as the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets, the foundation of the building. You can see how this passage about us being the temple was pretty subversive in a letter to the Ephesians. The temple isn't the building. The temple is the community of believers. We'll pick it up again in verse 21. God is building a home. He's using us all irrespective of how we got here and what he's building. He used the prophets and the apostles and prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. I think it's powerful. I think Paul is saying that the holy space isn't necessarily the temple building or the church building or the left-hand chapel, but rather I think the whole thing is the temple. And that includes you. What's interesting is when you think about the history of spirituality, people started building temples and the temple was a sacred space or a holy space. But the problem with the temple is you need sort of developmentally, if you think about human development, you need a temple to help you conceive of that which is sacred, of that which is holy and divine. But what a temple does in naming a space holy and sacred 
is that by default, it names other spaces not holy or less holy or less sacred. They become average and common by default. But the real gift of a spiritual path is how it illuminates for you the holiness and the sanctity of each other, of every moment, each breath, every encounter, every conversation. That's why last night when we said there would be no church at the community dinner, I think we were lying. It was church because sharing bread with many of you was holy and divine. So what's interesting is when you have a 20,000 person temple with millions of dollars flowing in, is that a successful church? Not necessarily. Because the point isn't the gathering or the thing we've built. But the point is that you, the church, are living with compassion, living in love, grounded and centered. Whether as a nurse or a city clerk or a mom and dad, and happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Whether as a landscaper, a server at a restaurant, as an educator. Whatever it is that you're doing, it's discovering the divine that's present in that that's holy. Because the whole thing is sacred and on fire. A couple of additional thoughts. Remember when Paul said, the Messiah tore down the wall we use to keep each other at a distance. Well, this is a reference to the temple in Jerusalem. Because at the temple in Jerusalem, everything was arranged spatially. The temple building itself wasn't particularly large, although it was several stories high. The innermost sanctuary around the temple building was called the Holy of Holies. And there it's believed that God was present in a unique way. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was so holy that only one person, the high priest, could enter, and that was only one time a year. But immediately outside of the temple building itself was a courtyard, the court of the Jews, where the Jewish worshipers could gather. And I think it should be on the, hopefully on the Chapeltron 5000. But there's a wall, there's a wall that surrounds the court of the Jews, and outside that wall was the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women. And this was a place for non-Jewish worshipers and non-male worshipers. If you were in the court of the Gentiles and you wanted to go to the court of the Jews, you were confronted by a wall that separated the two courts. And on that wall was this inscription that informed you that if you were a Gentile and you went into the court of the Jews, you'd be killed. Not very subtle. But this had a powerful impact on folks, but particularly the Gentiles or the non-Jews. Remember, the, temper, the temple is the center of not just religious activity, but also social activity and economic activity. And it's literally the heart and soul of Jerusalem. And the message it was giving is that God is in the center, and the closer you get to the center, then the closer you're getting to God. But Paul's saying those walls between Jew and Gentile, they're torn down, and Jesus tears them down. In Ephesians, we see a group of people who were previously divided by race, background, wealth, socioeconomic status, worldview, and religion. Groups made up of Jews, others Greeks. And to this new church, Paul writes to them to tell them they all need to become united as followers of Jesus. All the old categories do not work anymore. This new commonality, the new bond, is simply bigger than all of the things that had previously kept them apart. 
The first Christians had a phrase for what happens when you people properly respect and acknowledge the image of God in those people around them. And when under this image of God, they unite. The first Christians called this the new humanity. In the beginning, God created us in his own image. So God gave us an image to bear. Then God gave us something to do, to take care of the world, to move the world forward and take part in the ongoing creation of the world. Later, people began to move and go in different directions and different places. And it takes years and years and years of human history to get to the place where these people are from here and some people are from there and there's different locations and skin colors and languages and cultures and that comes later in the story too. And what we often do, I think, is we reverse the creative process that God initiated. We start with different cultural backgrounds, different skin colors, different nationalities. It's only when we look past these things that we're able to get to what we have in common, that we're fellow image bearers that are called to care for God's creation. We get a background, or we get it backward all the time. And I think Paul is calling us in the book of Ephesians to become part of the new humanity again, to see the spark of the divine in everyone, not just the people we go to church with, or the people we love, or the people that we politically agree with, and I think that's a hard one for some folks in here. Because when we don't get it, we're the kids in the beautiful auditorium in Ephesus that are belting out onward Christian soldier. When we don't get it, we're the people who separate ourselves by virtue of our nationality or our skin color or our sexuality or our cultural background. We're called to be the temple. Jesus has torn down the wall between Jews and Gentiles and we're called to help him tear those walls down. Because the message of Jesus is inclusion. It's not exclusion. It's an upside down message. And he's calling for an upside down empire, friends, based on a new humanity. One built on connection and solidarity under a new humanity instead of rank or hierarchy. Ones that's based on compassion and not control. Jesus' entire life is about love, not power. And we're called to be the temple. We're called to be that which is holy. We're called to be that that is carried out. May we live up to that calling. Let's pray. God, we come to you today, maybe a little tired, maybe a little stressed out, maybe feeling like there's nothing to be hopeful for. And we know life is hard sometimes. We ask that you help us see the holiness and sanctity that exists in all of the interactions that we have, in all of the little conversations we have, and even in every breath we take. And help us to see the divine in each other so that we can all fulfill our calling to be the temple of God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. 
You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings.